had never looked into the origins. I mean, the origins of the term totalitarianism, right? Not the Arendt book origins of totalitarianism. But that's actually kind of funny because as I have thought about totalitarianism and this, you know, the Hannah Arendt version of it, where it's like, if you're not bourgeois liberal democracy, you must be totalitarian or, you know, so it's that implication. I thought like, well, you know, a, a totalitarian regime is one that we're in no, and this is derived from Hannah Arendt in, um, or compatible in some ways. But if you think about it, it's more interesting that to, that it means that it's a totalizing regime in which no element of civil society or can can challenge the the prevailing uh, political order. And so, in my mind, I actually thought about what those initial leftists thought, which is that this that bourgeois democracy is to- totalizing because you are dependent upon this capitalist economy to uh, for all of our sense making institutions and the, uh, the the political system itself, the culture dependent on patronage the the media is dependent upon capital to be able to create media outlets and have people live i mean this is it's like it, it seems that not just not just liberal democracy but that pretty much every civilization the power structures in any civilization especially as you not are not talking about socialist outfits they uh, tend towards totalitarianism and towards stabilizing an, an order that cannot really be overthrown i mean this is kind of it seems like that's a more serious way to look at these issues, but not this Hannah Arendt, you know, liberal version. So, yeah, you know, I mean, that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, a good example of it, just as an aside, would be what's going on in the Ukraine right now, where uh, with the U.S. backed proxy war, the Zelensky government has taken complete control of the media, banned opposition uh, parties, thrown opposition political leaders into prison has gone about uh, basically dismantling all of the cultural references to actually existing socialism and that history, while at the same time directly empowering both culturally and militarily fascists, right? I don't think there's a better description of what a totalitarian society would look like than something like that. And it actually touches on another issue that is part of my research, but I think overlaps with the work that you do, and that is that so many of the critiques of socialism are simply the manifestation of liberal projection, meaning that the political elite and the kind of uh, the pundits of the capitalist world tend to take the most negative attributes of actually existing capitalist society and simply project them onto socialism. And so in that regard, totalitarianism, I think, could very well be understood as one of the elements in that form of liberal projection. There are many others, of course, like uh, racism is a great example. Like so many people assume that in actually existing socialism, there were very racist societies and things like this, when there was actually a very, very explicit attack on the racial apartheid that saturates the history of uh, the United States more specifically, but in general, the history of capitalism. And so it's a classic instance of political projection. Um, so anyway, that's just a kind of side note on that front. So if, if we can return to postmodernism, and uh, uh, because there's something your your article on the CIA and postmodernism, I think was was great. And uh, why was the CIA studying postmodernism in the mid 1980s? Because they would, on the surface, seem to be you know, not uh, an outfit that would be concerned about French theorists. We would think of them as kind of clods and spies who were maybe the more urbane ones would read some books, but they wouldn't be into this kind of material. So why were they doing this? Yeah, I think that the CIA in 
you know, since its uh, founding in 1947, in, was waging an intellectual and cultural world war. And the principal focal point for a lot of that, at least, was the Western European countries, in which they wanted to shore up an intelligentsia that was anti-communist. And they wanted the cultural world as well, all the cultural producers, the journalists, etc., to be anti-communist. And so they funneled enormous amounts of money, actually siphoning funds off of the Marshall uh, uh, Fund in order to do that, or the Marshall Plan in order to do that. And also, you, some of those involved uh, like seize Nazi funds that they repurposed. So yeah, no, exactly. Keep the it's, anti-communist it's a crusade alive. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, and hopefully we'll talk about that too. Is the recuperation of all the fascists and Nazis in the wake of World War II, of course, um, and even during World War II, because Alan Dulles was meeting with them in Switzerland, right? Um, the intellectual World War, at least to focus on that element of it, was uh, it, it was multifaceted. But one of the things that they wanted do was to demonize all of the Marxist intellectuals. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, of course, was one of the fundamental focal points. Simone de Beauvoir, anyone who is supporting uh, Marxism, actually existing socialism, and very importantly, anti-colonial struggles like Franz Fanon, who of course died in the arms of the Central Intelligence Agency. And that war was then demonizing figures like that while also simultaneously trying to promote work that could replace Marxism. And another element in the struggle is the institutional support that was uh, provided both by the CIA, but then also the major foundations that work hand in glove with the CIA, in particular Ford and Rockefeller. And they were shoring up, supporting, and promoting anti-communist educational institutions within Western Europe. And so the reason that they'd be interested in thinkers like Foucault or Levi-Strauss or the other figures that we kind of mentioned a moment ago is because of this larger framework of an anti-communist intellectual world war. And what they were particularly keen on was promoting work that had a certain appearance of either being radical in the case of someone like Foucault or being materialist, meaning that it had some type of empirical foundation to it, like the Annal School, for instance, but both of which were anti-Marxist and anti-communist. And so they were not only kind of keeping tabs on this type of work, but they worked with different uh, elements of the corporatocracy in order to support and promote that type of work. And, you know, Thomas Braden, of course, who oversaw from the Central Intelligence Agency a lot of these operations in Western Europe, spoke about it quite clearly. And one of his lines in a famous text that's really, it's a limited hangout because the CIA had vetted it before it was published. He published an article in the Saturday Evening Post, which itself is a CIA cutout, um, that is entitled something like, The CIA is Immoral and I'm Glad. And he talks about all of the cultural operations or some of the cultural operations that he was involved in in order to kind of nip it in the bud and control the narrative as the CIA regularly does when investigative journalists reveal what's going on. And one of the things that he said in that article that's quite revealing is he said that the only people who give a damn about fighting communism in Europe are the socialists. And what he meant by that, because I've been using these terms a little bit interchangeably, is the democratic socialists who were reformists and often uh, accommodated or accepted capitalism and imperialism and were against actually existing socialism. So they were you know, considered not communists. And so the Central Intelligence Agency, of course, uh, funded 
uh, so many of the prestige magazines that were involved in the, you know, tied to the Congress for Cultural Freedom and other such things as part of a way of building up the material infrastructure by which they could then own the intelligentsia. And so maybe I'll end on this point, but one metaphor or image that I think is quite helpful, because some people, when they engage with my work, they think that the CIA was just showing up and like dropping off a briefcase full of cash in front of Foucault's office so that he would, you know, write anti-Marxist things. That's not how these operations generally happened. I mean, there were some people, Sidney Hook and James Burnham were professors of philosophy at NYU moonlighting with the CIA, James Burnham in particular. And so there are cases of very, very direct work with the Central Intelligence Agency. But in general, what the agency did is that they weren't simply using intellectuals like a puppeteer would use a marionette. They bought and controlled the puppet theater so that the marionettes would come of their own will. And this is an important part that I think a lot of people need to understand. And it's smart on the part of the agency, because what it means is that if you're just, you know, using an intellectual as a puppet, it's very easy to find the strings and just trace it back. But if they actually control the puppet theater and the intellectuals, some of them are witting, some of them are unwitting, but they're all part of the same basic puppet theater, then the puppet master operates at a much higher level because they operate at the level of institutional control. And that is one of the central and guiding features of the intellectual world war. And it's why we need to undertake, and what I've been doing in my own work, is a political economy of knowledge production. And uh, therefore, we need to investigate these institutions and how they operate. That was just an excerpt from the American Exception podcast. To hear the whole episode, as well as archived and new episodes, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast at Patreon. There's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com slash American Exception. Subscribe and you can join us as we illuminate the dark side of the U.S. empire. <laughs> <laughs>